We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very excited to have Dr. Tyrone Burton on the podcast today. He was a music teacher from 1983 to 1989 and then became a principal. And then in 2001, Dr. Burton was assigned as the principal to Cherokee Park Elementary. At the time of his appointment, the school was in corrective action with their state score of 44.4 and the cutoff was 60. And so the school is about to be taken over by the Department of Education but he was able to bring that up, turn the school around, and have success. He retired from Cato Putt Parish Schools in 2017 as a distinguished principal and was hired by the Rensselaerville Institute, where he currently serves as a turnaround specialist. He's also the CEO and founder of Passion Driven Leadership, and this now allows him to pursue his passion, which is to help and support leaders in education. He and his wife, Wanda, have twin boys and three lovely grandchildren. He is also the author of reframing American education. So welcome, Dr. Burton, to Transformative Principle. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the opportunity to have me on the show and share today. 
Well, I'm excited to talk to you. You have a ton of experience, and I'm grateful that you're willing to share that expertise and experience with the listeners of Transformative Principle. There's so many different things that we could talk about, but I want to talk about one particular thing. And you mentioned, as we were talking before, about this idea that your teachers started recruiting teachers to work at your school by the end of your time there. And you were there for 16 years and had the school turned around and stayed turned around during that time. First, I want to talk about that aspect of school culture where teachers want to invite their friends to come and work with them. Tell me about that process and how that happened. Thank you. That's a great question. And again, thank you for allowing me to share. It's based on the premise, although I didn't know it at the time, but it's based on the premise of the research by Hoy and Hoy out of Ohio State about academic efficacy, which simply suggests that if teachers trust principals and teachers and parents trust teachers, that and you create an atmosphere of academic optimism, which means that all kids not just can learn, but all kids must learn, that that's a stronger indicator of increased student achievement more so than SES. So when I was interviewing teachers and trying to turn the school around, as I was interviewing them, I would use the team approach. I would have my counselor and my assistant principal or my instructional coordinator, and I would always have two other teachers. And I would not ask a question during the interview other than open up the interview, thanking them for coming, and I would make a statement at the end. And my questions were to all the all applicants is that we are starting a brand new thing. We're creating a brand new culture uh, and asking them if they're willing to grow because we wanted people who had a growth mindset. And that was before a growth mindset was even popular. And I asked the other two questions were, were they willing to come early and stay late? And so over a period of time, uh, my teachers grew when I say grew because uh, I, I, I encouraged them to get back in school and get higher education, get their master's. I also created programs at my school such that it put them in leadership positions. Uh, whenever we had uh, an event, Muffins for Mom, Donuts for Dads, uh, the School Learning Carnival, um, all those things, teachers were in charge of those. And so they were able to create and own the school culture and climate. Well, as a result, I had teachers who were constantly being promoted to principal, assistant principal, instruction coordinator, state level, district level, uh, because they, they in the atmosphere they, growth. And iron sharp as iron. So as a result, they owned the school culture and climate because they knew the type of teachers that they wanted at the school, which were teachers just like them. So unlike most schools who are Title I schools or schools who serve students who are under-resourced academically or socially, where you have uh, problems getting teachers, our problem was not getting teachers but choosing the right teachers that fit our culture and our climate such that they understood that they were teaching children first and that they had to gain the trust of those children and those parents, even though sometimes those parents uh, seemed rather hostile to them. They just didn't know how to be parents. So it, mean teach, it meant teaching parents, too. We were a very sought-after school in terms of teachers who wanted to grow. It, it, it was commonly known, known if you wanted to grow, go, go to Cherokee Park. So it was a great place to be. In fact, the principal who's there now, I hired her fresh out of school as a teacher. She's a principal now. That's awesome. That's great. That might be a good potential future guest to talk to her about what that experience was like as well. So we'll talk about that a little bit afterward. I've often said on this podcast that that creating a turnaround school is a simple process and it's not actually as hard as we think in our mind. It's just hard to do the actual work to do it. What do you see as the keys to turning around schools now that you have uh, this experience and you consult schools on that on a regular basis? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. That that's we don't because because we don't talk about that enough, uh, and we really should. Turnaround is not a place to hang out, uh, but it is a place for change to happen. And w- once uh, the principal and leadership team uh, get in their mind that there are certain things, there are certain characteristics that have to happen, that they have to display, and they have to have at the school, then uh, they communicate that often to the staff. And the staff realizes that this is just a place that we're going to hang out for a year, maybe two, and then set the course for what is going to be a great school. So it means being committed to putting kids first. It means being committed to being responsible for all the good things and bad things that happen. It means being responsible for setting the vision and following the vision and communicating the vision to all stakeholders. It means being fiscally responsible such that things happen for children that are both equitable and equal, and not just children, but teachers too. And it also means using the the data to make informed decisions and not using the the data to drive everything. One One of the biggest things that I see schools doing that's wrong and our profession promotes it. Everything is data-driven. We're going to do data. Data is going to drive everything. Well, when you go to a doctor, as I do, because I have diabetes, when I go to, go to the doctor, he's going to take blood and run tests, and he's going to use the data to make an informed decision regarding my, my medication, my diet, everything. And so just because I have a condition, the data doesn't mean that I'm going to die from it, you know, so, you know because so because he uses that data to make an informed decision. We as educators, and specifically those who are in turnaround, should be using data the same way to make informed decisions as far as how we're going to take it, how we're going to support teachers, how we're going to support students. And also in that same context, it means setting targets because we all know that students and teachers who set targets are more likely to reach targets. One of the targets that my, my doctor had, again, using data was that I lose weight because I'm fat. I'm really fat. So I had to lose some weight. And I've lost weight, so my A1C is down. Students are the same way. We have data chats with them to where they talk about not all kinds of data, but very specific data. When we have benchmark tests, some folks call them a star test or a quality test. We talk about what their score is and what their score needs to be. So it makes them stakeholders in their own success. We do the same thing with teachers. So those are things, principles and characteristics that once turnaround principles and turnaround leadership teams get in their tool belt, you can turn any school around in a matter of no time, but it means being committed to getting the work done and knowing that it's going to be hard work for a couple of years, but very rewarding work. Definitely rewarding work. Um, so, so let's talk about the difference between data-informed and data-driven. And I want you to give a couple of examples of how you would take that same piece of data. And you hinted at it a little bit by talking about the that you have these data conversations with kids. How do you be data-informed versus data-driven? And give some examples of those two different ways of using the data. I'm so glad you asked that question because we, again, we're the world's worst about making the, the data draw drives everything we do. There are four, basically four kinds of data, academic data, background data, demographic data, and perception data. Perception data is how people think we're doing. You really can't change that. You use it. Demographic data in the school, every child has a cumulative folder which has his address, his, his shot record, his past grades, his parents' address, how he's done the past academically, all this uh, demographic and background data. Academic data are those standard tests, standardized tests. It could be state tests. It could be local benchmark tests. could be quarterly tests. And what happens most often is that leadership teams and, and the teachers, they will look at the students' academic data and they will pre, pre, pre-impose 
all the demographic and back down, background data with it. And if a kid seems it seems to be failing, more specifically, let's just say a kid has a, a state I'm working with now is in Florida. In Florida, they have FSA tests. Whatever state has, has a major test. We know in education, we want a kid to have a year's worth of growth in one year. Well, if that kid on the in third grade didn't make a year's worth of growth and he goes to somehow goes to the fourth grade, then a teacher who was simply or a principal who was simply data driven will look at their score and say the data says that the kid didn't make a year's worth of growth. So that means that he must be in the lower quartile. So we're going to give him low level instruction. He's going to do routine work or he won't, we won't allow him or her to think and problem solve. No, no critical thinking, no analytical thinking, just basic routine things so he can do rote things and never grow. Someone who is using the data to make an informed decision looks at the same set of data and drills down deep and sees not just the score, but where in the context of the score that the kid was weak at, if it's ELA, uh, if is it, is it an information text or is it in a different kind of reading? And they drill down to see where the kid is weak and come up with instructional processes specifically for their kid to grow in that area. More specifically than that, they infuse in the instructional program opportunities for students, all students, to engage in critical thinking and problem solving by engaging in project-based, problem-based, or inquiry-based learning, which makes children think and problem solve. All of them, all of them do better. It means using the data to see where the kid is but data does not become the destiny for the child. It becomes an opportunity for growth. So it's a mindset that leaderships, teams, and leaders have and teachers have when they see the data on the student. And that idea of data-driven versus data-informed is something that I think is really important. And, and there are useful uses for data, but my problem has always been that if the data is everything, then the kids cannot be in that same sentence. And so if we're only focusing on the data, then we're forgetting who the child is as a human being. And we need to respect who they are as a human being first and foremost, before we do anything else. And one of the things that I'm frustrated with during the coronavirus is that people are talking about kids developing learning gaps. And the reality is that kids don't have learning gaps. They learn the next appropriate thing that they need to learn. And in schools, we think if they didn't learn it how we said they should, then that's a learning gap. And that's not the case. The learning gaps only exist when we compare kids to other kids and say, this kid did it right and this kid did it wrong. But that's ridiculous to do because each student is their own individual human being. I'm so glad you said that. What I talk about in the book is not the the importance of closing, not just achievement achievement gap, but before you close the achievement gap, you have to close the hope gap. And uh, that speaks to specifically what you're talking about with children and teachers. Because if we don't close the hope gap first, then the wealth gap, the achievement gap, all those other gaps won't get closed. And you have to instill in kids hope. There was a story I heard a long time ago about this teacher who was in in third grade. And she got the the student's name, and she she saw the scores, and the scores were, if you're on a, a scale score, if you, they were pretty high. And she said, I must have the smartest class in the whole school. And she saw the scores and the scores were three or 400. And she was really impressed. And at the end of the year, her kids did really well. And so all the teachers, all the other teachers went to her because the other teachers knew she had the lowest kids in the whole school, but she looked at those scores and she just thought she had the best kids in the school. 
Well, she said, she told us, she said, I saw these scores and I, I just was impressed because I saw how high they were. So the principal at the end of the year told her that those were scores, those were the locker numbers. So what she thought was scores, the locker numbers. But her mindset was that she had great kids. And because she thought she had great kids, she treated them just like they were the smartest kids in the school. So she closed the whole gap right away. And you have to do that. The school I work at now in Florida, before a kid gets to class, they are told good morning by at least five different people. When they get off the bus, they're told good morning by at least. Before they reach the teacher, they're told good morning five different times. Because you have to close the whole gap with kids who are under-resourced academically and socially. It has to happen. If not, the achievement gap never will close. So you are right on, on the money. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says Stop Talking and Start Doing with Regard to Teacher Well-Being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. I created a new podcast with my friend Frederick Lane called Cybertraps. We are exploring the myriad risks and adverse consequences that can arise from the use and misuse of digital devices and electronic communication tools. Please subscribe to the Cybertraps podcast, and if you like it, please give us a rating. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Eric Stevens on the value of identity and being ethical in our work with underserved populations. If I approach my research with the intention of helping a group of people, but I am using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their, their own personal identity, replicated over and over and over and over, my research is already flawed ethically. Some people, that's not a big thing. For me, it was problematic because I didn't want to feel like I was exploiting people, but I still wanted to help. What I ended up creating was I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time um, and across space in the United States. Um, basically, I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility um, with correctional officers, and we give them handbooks to say, hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to? To what standard are we asking them to be at the language level? Check out more from this interview at cybertraps.com slash seven. Over the course of the pandemic, a lot of things has, have changed for many of us. One thing that hasn't changed is our need for support 
as we do our work. And one of the things I was talking to a principal about the other day was the fear that she was feeling about not being good enough for what her families needed her to be. And through the mastermind, we help principals overcome those fears, those challenges, those issues that they have. And I want to invite you to join the mastermind. Go to jethrojones.com slash mastermind for more information and click that link there to schedule a call with me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Boy, that's a great story about that misunderstanding of what the numbers meant. But that's so powerful because the numbers are just numbers, but the kids are human beings. And when we when we recognize who they are and see them with potential, I've said many times, my faith perspective tells me that every single human being is a child yes. of God. And so yes. when I see kids as children of God, I see them differently than when I see them as scores on a piece of paper, yes. right? And so we need to look at kids first. We need to put them first and say, you have value, not because you're white or you're black or whatever. You yes. have value because you are a human being first and foremost. And yes. I, I extend the same approach to teachers as well. You need to have self-care because you're a human being and you matter as a human first and foremost. You don't need to be take care of yourself so that you have enough to take care of other people. You need to take care of yourself because you are a person and you deserve that as a human being. And too often we, we focus on the data. We focus on even with teachers on their data and their scores and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't help improve things, but closing the hope gap. I think that's another thing that is just a powerful way to look at that. Yeah. You, you also mentioned you on a roll today. You mentioned something else that's powerful. <laughs> really about teachers taking care of themselves because so often, Jethro, we beat teachers up with data. I mean, we literally beat them up with data, make them feel inconsequential. We talk to them sometimes in condescending ways because of the data. And, and t- most teachers are really, they will give you the shit sh- sh- off their backs because they're really caring people. So, so we beat them up and they work harder, but not necessarily smarter. And when we teach teachers how to work smart, but more importantly, have them to take time for themselves and take care of themselves. Stephen Covey talks about, I'm, I'm a lover of Covey sort of guy, but he talks about uh, that, that, he, that the emotional bank and how if people are always making withdrawals and no deposits, then at the end of the day, you're emotionally, emotionally bankrupt. And teachers at the end of the day, is particularly if you work with a population that's challenging socially, they at the end of the day can be emotionally bankrupt. And on top of that, then, then we beat them up and make them more bankrupt when what we should be doing is pouring into them and telling them how and showing them how much we help and support them to be better teachers and growing them so they want to eat the kids. So it's a win-win situation when you grow your teachers and you and you can encourage them to take care of themselves. I would often tell my people, you know, and it wasn't really popular, but every now and then to take a wellness day. Not that you're feeling bad, but just take a stress-free day. Tell your husband you're going to work. Leave, don't go to work, get your hotel room and just lay out and go to sleep. Just take a wellness day. It's, it's important for our mental health and we don't do that enough. We don't encourage our teachers to do it enough, do it enough either. And we as principals, who are effective principals, surely don't do it enough. In, in the book that's coming out, not, not the book that's here, I devote a whole chapter, it's called The Balancing Act. I was a very effective principal, but I lost 
my wife, lost my kids, lost my family. I have them back now. We're back together now. But I was so focused on the work until I forgot to be husband, daddy. I was just the principal, a darn good principal, but I was just the principal. And I got lost in being the principal. And we get lost in doing the work. So kudos for you for recognizing that it's important for us to grow teachers as well as grow students. So true. I tried really hard to do that for teachers and I didn't succeed all the time. And some teachers thought that I was a jerk and that I was a horrible person. And that's, I'm sorry to all those people who think that, but the teachers that I did support and, and gave that extra attention to and made sure that I knew that I saw them as people first, that was really powerful. And they're still my friends today and they still, they still want to connect and stay in touch with each other and know what's going on in, in our each other's lives. And that, that is really important. Whatever those scores are, they don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. What yes. matters is how we treat each other and who they are. I do want to change course a little bit because in in the book, uh, Reframing American Education, you talk about one of the chapters is the case against standardization. And we could talk uh, for hours about this, but give us the high-level overview of what we should take away from the standards that have been pushed upon us, all the testing and the expectations for kids meeting standards that are largely unproven. And let's just have a conversation about that. Wow. You know, when I get excited, I tend to talk real fast. And that topic excites me, so I'm going to try to talk very slowly so fucking understand what I'm saying, because uh, that's the topic that I'm really passionate about, Because, and that's why I devote a whole chapter to it. And a lot of my work is based upon the research by Christopher Tinkin out of Seton Hall. He has a great book called uh, Cracking the Code or Code Cracking. And um, he, like some other people who, like myself, are like-minded, when it comes to standardization, all of us in education know that there is no, and I repeat, no N-O, empirical research regarding standardization that it works. None whatsoever. The only reason, going back to 2000, in fact, that's why in the book, I start, I talk about data, pre-standardization and post-standardization. When you look at around 2000 and beyond, because when standardization first started with No Child Left Behind, there were no letter grades. It was just scores. And uh, But the, the bottom line is, educators didn't do that. The chief counsel of school and state operating officers did that. The National Governors Association did that because we don't control education. They do. So they decided that, okay, we have to keep the gap between the have and have nots. And that's really what it's about. It, it, it's, it's, it's about keeping the gap between the have and have nots. So one way to do that is to design a curriculum whereby you measure, you decide what teachers teach and how they teach it and how it's scored. So you keep an upper class and you keep a working class, you keep an upper class. And I'm not talking about black and white. It's really more class than it is a cast than it is anything else. So this whole system of standardization has morphed from just cutoff scores, and then we got letter grades, and we got school grades. The whole thing is a wash. The whole thing is a system built on the farce. If you go back to uh, the 30th study in 18, I think 18, I, I cited in the book, 1830, 18-7, whereby before we had standardization, in American education, students were, were taught to think quick and problem solve and good citizenship and good morals and values. Those scores, because we've always had accountability. I'm, I'm not 
uh, anti-accountability. I am anti a system that says that we all need to be the same place at the same time, which is a one size fits all. And that never works in education. We don't wear the same size shoes. We don't wear the same size pants. Why should, why should we make all folk have the same system when actually it's not all folk. It's just all folk in in. Uh, mainstream education. If you look at upper crust schools, they don't do that. You know, Ivy League schools, they don't do that. It's just certain schools do. So, you know, more importantly, the research, there is no research. I would challenge any educator to find research to support that standardization is a good thing for kids. It just is not there. But we do it because educators don't control education. And it's past time that we took control of our business to do what's right, rightful, and righteous for all kids all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so this goes back to the idea that the people making close to the classroom and close to the students who are doing it. And so instead of us just complaining that is the issue, we need to take active steps to push against that. And so one of the ways that I pushed against that narrative was by giving kids in my school nearly two hours, twice a week for them to work on something that wasn't connected to any content area. Because what I found is that if you were a math teacher and you had a math period or some other type of class period, you would say, I need to be focusing on these standards. And it's really hard for teachers to break away from that. And so we changed it so that it, it was a period of time during the day when you were not connected to a content area. That meant that you as the teacher could then work with the kids and help decide how that time was going to be spent. But we took it a step further and we said, here's what you need to do, students. You need to come up with a problem that exists in the world and figure out how to make the world better. And you can define world. You can define better. It doesn't have to be like, you know, we're going to end climate change and eliminate the use of fossil fuels or something like that. Because you probably, as a seventh grade student, don't have the expertise, knowledge, capability to do that. But what we found with those students is when we followed them around and attached standards to what they were doing, we found that they exceeded our expectations of how many standards they could learn every time. So why is that the kids can learn better without the standards, according to the standards, than with the standards? You mentioned it earlier. We have beat teachers over the head so much and we hound them until teachers teach standards and don't teach students. It's important for teachers to teach students first. And the standards come after that. Now, do they have to know the standards of pass the test? Yes. But the best way to teach it, that the, on any evaluation scale that we have, it doesn't matter what you use, the highest score you can get is when the student owns the lesson. And when you do what you just said, or you, you, one year I did the same thing. We focused on just thinking and problem solving. And we focused on, on just on, on inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, and, and problem-based learning. And so students were worked in teams to get those things done. When students own the learning process, it's a win-win situation for everyone because they make it real world. It's practical thinking. They use analytical thinking and problem solving. And that's what the real world is. You know, so when we make it real world, it's a win for kids. It means someone who has the gall, the audacity to stop drinking the Kool-Aid of accountability and standardization. They'll say, okay, we have to get it done. This is how we're going to get it done. We're going to grow kids. We're going to encourage teachers. And we're going to, this is a standard, but this, you're, going to, you're going to use a standard like this and get the same thing done. So they own the whole process. And they remember because they've used it all the time. 
That is the best way to get kids to go. But folk who sit behind our desks or principals are afraid to do it because they've been told you, you better do this, you better do that, you better do so many sorts of things. And it's hard for us to, to stop drinking the Kool-Aid. So it takes men and women who have the ovarian audacity and the, and the testicular fortitude to do the right thing. Yep, I said it. it I mean, you, you just got to get it done. Yeah. We fear that something bad is going to happen when we do that. We fear that we're going to get in trouble. And the reality is, is that for years, teachers have always been able to close their doors and do whatever they want because the the supervision of that daily practice really is not there. Um, and even for a principal who tries to be in classrooms all the time, you just, you can't be there all the time. And so you have to trust your teachers from the very beginning to do great work with kids. And unfortunately, we've taken that to mean you have to teach these specific standards in this specific way at this specific time. And that doesn't actually help them grow and learn and be better. And so taking a different approach, um, you know, in, in my school, what we saw the kids doing we're coming up with these ideas and ways of operating that we as the school leaders and teachers never would have thought to even be able to tell them to do because they were, like you said, owning the learning process. And and that is incredibly important and valuable. You mentioned the T word and the T word is very important, trust. You, you trusted your teachers. And that's the important thing. And so often with accountability, we don't trust them to have enough sense to know what to do. So we beat them over here with standards and we, what's it called? We dissect the standards over and over again. I don't know how many times that we're going to do that. But you trusted your folk enough to do the right thing. And when teachers trust principals and teachers trust and students trust teachers and parents trust them, it's a win-win situation. The research says that. There's plenty of research to support that. And for some reason, we drink the Kool-Aid and we don't trust them and they don't trust us. That's what accountability has done in most cases. And we leave a lot of opportunity and growth on the table. I really appreciate you brought it back to trust because that's exactly what we um, that's exactly what we need. So my final question, Dr. Burton, is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal? Oh, that's a tough question. The one thing I got, the one thing a principal can do this week to, to transform is to uh, is to change their mindset because transformation starts at the mind first. It becomes intrinsic before it's, et, it before, before it's extrinsic. So the one thing a principal can do this week is start to think about how they can transform themselves because you can't grow yourself until you know yourself and then how they can grow the folk around them. So if they can grow themselves and they can grow, grow their leadership teams, then they can, in essence, grow teachers and grow students. So I would encourage all principals now to simply take some time and reflect, because what we don't do often enough, enough is have reflection time. You mentioned, you know, your faith in the Bible. And Jesus spent hours in prayer, which we call that reflection, a meditation. But he spent hours thinking about what he was going to do. We, you know, in every lesson plan, there should be at the bottom something that's called reflection, where you think about what worked and what didn't work. As principals, we, we need to take time and think about what is working and what's not working and build those things up that are working and things that are, that are not working, then delete them. So it, I would encourage principals to spend time reflecting on how they can get their mindset to where they grow and cause the folk around them to grow. And it starts in the mind first. Yeah, very good. Well, if you would like to connect more with Dr. Tyrone Burton, you can follow him on Twitter 
at Dr. Tyrone Burton and go to his website to learn more, passiondrivenleadership.org. You can get links to all that in the show notes. Uh, Thank you again, uh, Dr. Burton, for being part of Transformative Principle. Thank you, sir, for allowing me to come. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash principal. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.